from the unreal to the real, lead us from darkness unto light, lead us from death to immortality. Om, peace, peace, peace. Good morning and namaste everybody. Namaste. Good to see all of you. And also we have an extensive virtual audience all over the world. So it's actually people from all over the world who send us these questions which we try to answer, only a fraction of which unfortunately and very unjustly I think, but we are constrained by time. And we haven't had these Ask Swami sessions for a while now. So I was told between the last one and this one, nearly 1500 questions have piled up. But our team does a really good job of um, classifying and selecting and giving me a few of them. So Diane will read out, as usual, some of those questions. We'll also have questions from the audience assembled here. Uh, you have to raise your hand, I'll call upon you, come here and um, there's a microphone, tell us your name and ask the question. Keep it short as far as possible. We will first start with a couple of questions, at least, from the inter uh, internet audience. Yes, Diane. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, the first question comes from Malika Luna. Okay. Is this audible enough? No. No, no. no it's, I don't think it's... Yeah, now it's oh, on, yeah. Okay. But to put uh, it a little closer, I think. Yes. So the first question comes from Mali Kajuna K who seeks clarification on the position of duality in Advaita. In Nirvana Shatakam, Shankara takes an uncompromising non-dualist position by saying there is no self, no God, no guru, etc., which seems to treat these ideas only as practical but ultimately unreal concessions whereas Sri Ramakrishna's Vijnana seems to accord equal ontological reality to both immanence and transcendence without treating either of them as the ultimate. Swamiji, would you please explain which position is the true Advaita? All right, this is a difficult one, very philosophical, deals with the very nature of existence, of non-duality. So, First of all, Shankara does not deny that, that there is a self. In fact, Shankara says there is only the self. If, I no, if you noted the question, ultimately there is no self, no guru. True, no guru, no, none of the um, you know, persons, things in this world, only the non-dual Atman. But Atman means the self. So the self is the only reality which exists, the capitalist self, and it's non-dual. Now, equal ontological reality to immanence and transcendence. So, immanence and transcendence, what it would mean would be, um, beyond this world, there exists this reality. 
call it god brahman whatever it is so it transcends time space causation it transcends our um perceptions of the senses it transcends this material world so in that sense transcendental it's beyond all this um religion defines god at the very least as transcendental beyond this universe and immanent would be in and through this universe also so what is this universe if it's transcendent the ultimate reality is beyond this universe and this universe is something separate from that but uh in vedanta swami vivekananda said we hindus worship a transcendent immanent god transcendent means beyond this universe beyond time space causation beyond humanity beyond limitation infinite but also immanent here here in and through everything so this universe is not a separate reality apart from god that would be a monstrosity actually <laughs> why what would that would mean that the universe the world is a godless place and god is a limited being why limited because if it's uh, something apart from the universe then god is a limit where does god stop when the universe begins so there are two realities god and the universe the universe is limited we all know but then you make this terrible mistake of making god limited that there is something apart from god all right and this is a very simplistic way of putting it theologians have multiple ways of getting around this but if you say no 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 this universe is not apart from god god is here in this universe too as well as being transcended god let's use the word advaitic word brahman brahman means the ultimate reality literally it means the vast vast is equal to infinite infinite means not limited so it's right here in this universe also so how is it how is brahman here in this universe as immanent as constituting the inner reality the inner um you can call it the ontological reality or spiritual reality whatever of this universe um now notice even these words transcendent immanent they all are from the perspective of the universe assuming there's a universe now this spiritual reality this non-dual brahman you're talking about is it beyond this universe yes so it's transcendent is it in and through this universe yes then it's immanent but you're already assuming that there is a universe <laughs> and in the uh, in the non-dual in the non-dual position actually there is no universe even these questions of transcendence and immanence have an element of ignorance to them it's like in a dream so we suddenly told it's the dreaming mind which is dreaming up this entire universe in the dream the dream universe now if i ask that oh so where is this dreamer is he part of this universe somewhere around this no no he is beyond this the dreamer is dreaming and now we have a dream but not only beyond this the dreamer is also immanent in the dream in everything that you are dream everything that you see in the dream everybody every experience the dreamer is there because it's the dreamer alone who's appearing as this dream the dreamer's mind so the dreamer both transcends the dream and is immanent in the dream but if if the dream is not a reality at all in that case transcends what and is immanent in what it's the dreamer alone who is real not the dream now when if somebody says does one give equal ontological importance to transcendence and immanence 
Brahman is beyond everything, that's real. Brahman is in and through everything, that's real. No, that is not the non-dual position. Any kind of non-duality will have this crucial, one crucial thing which is non, is not, they will not compromise. There cannot be any other ontological reality apart from Brahman. That's the meaning of non-duality. Not two. Not two. Existence, consciousness, bliss is the only reality. Take it. Take existence for example. Existence itself is the only reality. There cannot be anything other than existence. Literally, tautologically. If you say there is something other than existence, what would it be? Not existence. Well, not existence does not exist anyway. So. <laughs> now, existence alone exists. Almost by, like by, by definition. So, Brahman alone exists. There is no 50-50 sharing of, uh, you know, Brahman has some reality and the world has some reality. Then it's not non-duality. However, even within this strict um, definition of Brahman as the non-dual reality, no compromise with no sharing of existence. Brahman alone exists. Then there's no second existence equal to Brahman apart from that. Even within this, there is enough ground to play around. Uh, philosophically, metaphysically. How? One can take the extreme position, say Gaudapada, Ajatavada. There is no universe which has ever originated. Not very difficult to understand. And how can you say there is no universe? You are in the middle of a universe. You are experiencing all this. How can you say there is no universe? Well, you can. Strictly speaking, even when you see a dream, when you see a movie, when you read a f book of fiction. So, in a dream, I see people and um, good and bad things are happening. I see the sky and the earth and I can see myself in the dream. But if you ask, strictly speaking, when you wake up, when you know it was a dream, did you really see a sky? Your eyes were closed. How could you see a sky? Did you really see other people? Well, go and ask them that I saw you last night in the dream. They'll think you're crazy. No, you must admit to yourself that you did not see a sky and an earth. You did not see a people. You did not see even your own body there. From the waking perspective, the whole thing was imagination. That's why we call it a dream. So strictly speaking, there were no other entities there in the dream, except you, the dreamer. But you imagined it all. There was only one, the dreaming mind. But you imagined uh, an experienced, experienced, a dream, a plurality of entities and experiences. So from a strict ontological perspective, ontological means um, being, existence, what really is. From an ontological perspective, there was only one. There is no universe, no variety, no second. Gaurapada is right. There is no universe apart from Brahman, other than Brahman. But then we can say, how about the experience itself? In the one dreaming mind, we experienced, I admit, there was no second thing there, but we experienced a duality. We experience people, happenings, pleasant, unpleasant. I have memories of my dream. I can talk to my therapist about my dreams extensively. <laughs> Knowing he knows it's a dream, I know it's a dream, but we can talk about it. We have, uh, um, you know, New York Times writes columns and columns about, uh, you know, novels and fiction and literary criticism about things we all know is fiction. We can. 
and go and watch a movie and such a variety is experienced so fiction appearance is a category which is well understood and in advaita vedanta also you can give importance to this appearance and talk about it and take it seriously as an appearance so that's the second level in, instead of saying that no universe at all you can say universe is there as an appearance it's a lower level of reality brahman is the real really real thing and the universe is not really real it's like a fiction it's like a dream it's like a uh, you know like a the snake in the rope and that's the second level there's the third level of taking the universe seriously where at the level of the appearance you take it to that extent you take it seriously because you are part of the appearance in this body and mind you play the game you go along with it like an actor on a broad in a broadway play in the middle of the play he suddenly thinks what am i doing <laughs> it's just it's a stage everybody's pretending there is no lion king there is no baby lion there is no evil lion it's all just make believe well i won't tell my lines or i'll make up new lines as i go along or i'll do whatever i like no then you will ruin the play and get fired too <laughs> so you go along with the play and you do a good job then you are a good actor knowing full well that it's a play now if you take it seriously that's yet another level of reality so which one will you do the godapada uh, the first level where you do not give any importance at all to this appearance and you stick to the fact that it's one existence consciousness place and i am that you can do that that is called ajatavada the theory of non origination in advaita vedanta shankaracharya's guru's guru gaudapada acharya in the mandukya karika he held on to this very strictly um, in some forms of dzogchen buddhism also it's like a magical display there is only the buddha nature there's only existence consciousness place that's one second is it's a dream Oh it's magnificent it's a play it's a movie enjoy it enjoy the happiness enjoy the sorrow uh, it's a delight pleasure pain samsara all of it is like a uh, like a display like a dream and the third one is no not only enjoy it engage with it with full knowledge of your freedom with full knowledge that you are um, brahman uh, you know like shankaracharya says chidananda roopa shivoham so there are three categories of enlightened beings this i am drawing from an essay by swami gambhirananda he was the 11th president of our order so there he says the enlightened person and he draws from uh, an example a parable given by sri ramakrishna what are enlightened people like so he says there were three friends who are walking along there's a high wall and they want one point they became curious what's beyond you know what transcends this So with great difficulty one of them climbed up on top of the wall and he looked beyond and he shouted in delight and he jumped on the other side and disappeared and these two were left looking at each other you know what was that and they became even more curious what was that so the second person climbs up he dances in delight and jumps on the other side the third person with great difficulty climbs over what's going on here and he sees this uh, sri ramakrishna says a mart of joy a festival in india you have to think about what's called a mela you know in villages suddenly the 
it's suddenly magic comes to your drab little village there is a festival there are shops there are jugglers there is it's a lot of fun but it comes and goes so it is there it has come and uh, he sees this and it's such fun he too wants to he shouts in joy he wants to jump over then he thought what about the poor people back there who will tell them and who will show them this here is the solution to all your the sorrows of life there is so much joy fulfillment freedom so he does not jump over he turns around and comes back into our tired little world to tell us this the good news now gamiranji says there are three kinds of enlightened beings there are those who discover the truth they are enlightened they realize this infinite existence consciousness bliss like shankaracharya sings chidananda roopa shivoham shivoham i am bliss i am consciousness unlimited bliss and consciousness i am shiva i am shiva they see that actually and they want to remain absorbed in that why because gaudapada has taught us what else is there that's the only thing that's there if you strictly logical that's the only thing that is there and stay there so they might remain absorbed in samadhi and soon give up this body also so they are the ones who jump over that wall and could disappear then there's the second kind of uh, um, enlightened being it says those who see this world they realize i am brahman but they see this world as a dream as a magic show as an illusion and what fun it is sri ramakrishna talks about the monk who came enlightened being child like it gives a very beautiful description he was dressed in rags and he had such a pure child like face and always in joy and smiling he would stay most of the time in his little hut in meditation but once in a while he would come out and look at the sky the river the ganga where sri ramakrishna lived the temple and the trees and shout with joy bravo bravo in he would say you know wah wah why here is this one pure subject appearing as the objective universe here is this eternal existence consciousness bliss appearing as a continuously changing samsara here is this pure being appearing as sky and earth and river here is this unlimited consciousness appearing as a myriad of conscious entities here is bliss appearing as misery sorrow the pursuit of pleasure what a wonderful display amazing and so he shouts in delight he would sometimes sri ramakrishna says this monk would roll on the sand uh, you know in he couldn't control his laughter what fun what fun and then he would go back into the hut he didn't go out and uh, he he acknowledged it that he sees it but he didn't go out and you know open uh, schools and colleges and a hospital and uh, and give people teachings about vedanta he didn't because it's not real to him it's it's a display and then there's the third one swami gambhirananda writes third kind of enlightened one who's the one who came down from the high wall and came back to us is the one whose heart melts in um sympathy for our sorrows so he takes this appearance seriously and reacts to it appropriately these are the world teachers they are the reason why we are here today by all temples churches uh, meditation halls and all the scriptures of the world why do they exist because of that third category and of course there we make Uh, hierarchy we make hierarchies some are jeevan muktas enlightened beings free while living some are avatars uh, but these are our categories 
All right. So that's my answer to the question. Sri Ramakrishna in the spectrum, where would he fall? So in the spectrum, where would he fall? It sounds like the what is that DSM or something? The the, the, the <laughs> mental illness, the spectrum of mental illness. In which which part would Sri Ramakrishna fall? <laughs> well, he would fall on this part of taking this world seriously. So he takes this seriously, and so do we, Vivekananda and others. So not only to to teach and share, but also not just spiritual knowledge, but all of it. Once you have this helpful mode, you would want to help in every possible way. Not just give uh, Vedantic or some teachings, but also uh, schools for the uh, unlearned and, and illiterate or hospitals to take care of the sick, the hungry and the poor and so on. So your helpfulness does not stop here. Well, this is not Vedanta. It's outside the syllabus. You can go elsewhere. No. Yeah, so that's the answer. Um, in fact, if you want to put it in one sentence, uh, if one can would just say that Sri Ramakrishna gives more emphasis on the immanence aspect of it. And Shankara and Gaudapada gave more ex uh, emphasis on the transcendent aspect of it. Uh, one teacher said he gives, actually Sri Ramakrishna gives equal emphasis on both the transcendent and the immanent. All right. The second question is from me to be. The seventh verse of the Ashtavakra Samhita says that you are the seer of all. The eighth verse says you are not the doer. Then who is the doer of action? Oh. You are. <laughs> but he just said you are not the doer. Well, you aren't. <laughs> There's this story of the judge. You know, A man came before him with a accusation against somebody else. That person has done this, this, that and the other. Uh, he is guilty. And the judge said, you're right. And the defendant was annoyed. You haven't even heard me. Hear me out. I haven't done it. I am being improperly accused and so on. The judge said, you're right. <laughs> and, and, and the judge's wife was listening at the back and she whispered to him from behind, you know, are you crazy? How can they both be right? Are you mad? You are right too. <laughs> Yes. So how are you the doer and how are you not the doer? First of all, what would Advaita Vedanta say about this? And clearly it says that you are not the doer. Ashtavakra. Eko drashtasi. That's the seventh verse. And the eighth verse, I don't remember the Sanskrit. It's something like the doer, the idea of that I am the doer is the, is the black cobra, is the dark serpent. Uh, you uh, escape from this and take refuge in the, the knowledge that I am not the doer. Now what does this mean? Why is it so bad being the doer? Because the moment I am the doer, I am this person. And I am engaged in action. The moment I am engaged in action, I am under the law of karma. Karma is upon me. Nobody is free. Vivekananda says, whosoever wears a form. What do you mean wearing a form? I am wearing a t-shirt, but what's a form? The body. The body. Whosoever wears the form, wears the chain too. What's the chain? Good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. This law of karma. So the moment I, I see myself as a doer, I'm responsible for what I do. 
whether the law catches me or not, whether the IRS catches me or not, the, it's inexorable. It's in, inexorable. The, mach, the machinery of nature. Uh, religions call it karma, they call it the wrath of God, or whatever you call it. But it's inexorable. Cause will have its effect. Uh, actions have consequences. Now, Advaita Vedanta says, actually there's good news. You are not the doer. You never were. Vivekananda writes in the same paragraph of the poem, he says, but far beyond is Atman ever free, far beyond name and form is Atman ever free. Know thou art that sannyasi bold, say Om Tat Sat Om. How so? Now there's the, in the movie, there's the hero doing heroic things, there's a villain doing villainous things. They are doers and they will get their reward. The hero will get the reward and the villain will get the punishment. But if it's a movie, it's a screen, it's light and uh, pictures on a screen. There is no hero, there is no villain, there is no villainous deeds, there is no heroic deeds either. There is only one limitless screen of light and picture and sh you know, shadow and sound. Similarly, from the per non-dual perspective, you are limitless being. You are existence consciousness bliss. Vivekananda says something that could be shocking, you know. He says, Vivekananda, he says, all that was done in the past, forget it. It has no existence anymore. Let it go. Just be careful not to do it again. Be strong. The results will keep coming from the past. So be strong to withstand the results because they are not real anyway. They are also part of the movie. The future doesn't exist also. The past doesn't exist also. In one sense, in that case, there is no presence. There is only one reality beyond time. So that's what he says. Um, so that's from the Advaitic perspective. The show of the world, there is karma, cause and effect. But beyond the show of the world, it's a show. There is only one reality which is you, the existence consciousness place. So in that sense, you are not the doer. But in the movie, in the story, there are doers and there are actions and there are consequences. Now, as long as we do not realize that we are, that, that it's a story, that it's a movie, as long as we think, I am only this person, here is the world and here is what I have done in the past and what I'm doing now and I'm getting consequences of my past actions, how? I see what's happening in my life. Good and bad things are happening. There are consequences of my past action. So what has happened is, the background existence consciousness place that I am the Atman is forgotten, obscured. This is ignorance. I don't know that I am Brahman. I just think I am this person. So Brahman, Brahman nature obscured, identified with body-mind, thinking of itself as a doer. Yes, in that sense you are the doer. Because you're clearly getting the results of your actions. Once we are enlightened, we realize we are not the doer. However, it's the real thing is neither uh, ignorance nor knowledge. Because the enlightened ones are safe. They know they are not the doer. The unenlightened ones are not interested anyway. They are not here. <laughs> the problem is with us in between. We realize that, okay, all right, there is this way of going beyond karma, beyond causation, beyond limitation. And in some sense, ultimate sense, I am not the doer, I'm, not, I'm, uh, I'm beyond the law of karma, beyond samsara. However, right now I don't feel it. 
I'm not getting those benefits. I still feel practically that I am the doer and I am suffering in the world. Now what do I do? I really feel I'm the doer. And until we get enlightened, we can't break out. It's, not, it's impossible. You'll keep feeling that you are the doer. Then why will you feel? Because we are identified with the body. Identified is a very philosophical way of thinking. It's a simple statement. We think, we not even think. We are, within quotes, the body-mind. And therefore we are doers. And we are caught here. Then what? So here comes the beautiful, powerful method of karma yoga. Move from, in Sanskrit it's called sakama, with desire doership, into no desire doership. Since you cannot escape from the feeling of being a doer. Just, I'm talking, I can't honestly say that I don't have the feeling that I'm not, uh, that I'm talking. Uh, I can't say that I am the witness consciousness and there's no talking, nothing, it's just an appearance. I can't right now very strongly say that you feel you are identified with the body-mind. In that case, move from doership with desire to doership without desire. In Sanskrit, from sakama to nishkama. Let go of desire. What is there to desire in this world of appearances? Either they are all appearances, the stuff of dream and illusion, or they are nothing other than you. They are already you. The people in this world, the desirable things and activities and places in this world, they are you. Just as everything experienced in a dream is the dreamer. What is there to, um, to desire in this world? What is there to be afraid of in this world also? It, it will not affect you at all. You will still be perfectly safe not as the body. The body will die. You will still be perfectly safe as the Atman. So, have no desire. Big, make a beginning there. Say, I want nothing. I am limitless. The all is in me. I am in all. I understand Vedanta at least, even if I don't feel it, even if it's not a living reality for me yet. I get it. And so this is my view. I am trying to be at least desireless. I want, at least you can say that, I want to be free of want. <laughs> so I'm trying to be desireless. I want to be free of want and then act from that perspective. That's difficult enough. Make a beginning there. So that is the answer to the question, who is the doer? And even after all this, there's a one witness consciousness, this world of appearance. Even then, if you want an accounting, still, still, things are happening in the world. And I strongly feel there must be a doer. Give me one answer at the end. In ignorance we think we are the doer. In absolute knowledge there is no doer, it's a world of appearances. But ultimately can you give me one doer, can you put everything, all the accounts in the name of one, one person, one doer, somebody? And the answer in that case would be, if you really want an answer, God is the only doer. There is one Ishvara. So what's the relationship between this ultimate reality and God? God is that ultimate reality, but with a personality. What a personality. It's the cosmic. So that same consciousness with the cosmic mind and this cosmic body is the one acting through all bodies, thinking through all minds, speaking through all tongues. The real doer is God. And if you ask God, so you are the real doer, God will say, who, me, no? 
Because God is fully enlightened all the time. God knows that I am that absolute reality. We don't know that we are that absolute. We, are, we don't know we are Brahman. If these things are getting mixed up, Sanskrit terms are very clear. Brahman or Nirguna Brahman is the absolute reality. God is called Saguna Brahman, Ishvara. And we are sentient beings, Jiva. The sentient beings can be under ignorance or can be enlightened. Jivan Mukta, the enlightened sentient being. God is always enlightened. No... And being enlightened, also one interesting thing, we can link it back to the earlier question. There are three kinds of enlightened beings. Those who don't see the universe at all and want to be merged in Brahman, always remain in the, as, as the absolute, in the, what one might call the transcendent. Those who see the universe and people and their own bodies like a magic show, as a delight. And those who take it seriously and are full of sympathy, and helpfulness. Which one is God? God is the third one. That's why of all the enlightened beings, the third kind are those who are most godlike, who are beneficent to everybody else, and, and uh, try to be helpful. All right. Can we take a question from the audience who would like to come? Yes. Um, come here and ask the question, and then we'll take the one from the lady at the back. Next. Wait. Tell okay. us your name and ask the question. My name is Mira. Thank you, Swami, for sharing with us. I've been here before when you've shared with us about um, other Swamis and their routines and their life. I'm interested to know, what is your daily routine? What is your meditation? And how has it evolved? It's pretty simple. All the monks, what their daily routine is, I have the same one. I get up early in the morning, I chant, meditate, I study, and uh, then it's the ashram work, whichever ashram we are in, then there will be a component of uh, devotional practices. For us, it's the arati here. In the Indian ashrams, much more uh, elaborate. And um, there is Vedantic study. Again, in the evening, I meditate. So that's it. So all the monks have all these. What do they do? They meditate. They are devotional, sometimes ritualistic also. They, um, they study. And they work. What is your meditation? Is it a nidra? That's it. More than that, I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the lady there, and then we'll go back to some more. We'll take it next. And then we will go back to some more questions from the internet audience. Tell us your name and ask the question. Um, Om Shri Guru Bhyo Namaha. I'm Aparajita. Um, and thank you for having us here. Um, I've actually been, the, the conviction that art is more real than real life itself has been growing within me um, for the past few months. So what you were talking in response to the first question really resonated. Um, what I'm thinking about is just as artists practice their art so as to create it better, uh, to create the sense that the representation of reality is more real than reality itself, is akin to how the yogi or the, the one who's meditating practices their meditation, focusing upon something that seems not real, but is like latching on to, for, exa for example, with Japa, you dwell in the name of the God, which is like dwelling in a poem, for instance. Um, in chapter six, Arjuna asks Krishna about the chanchala of the mind, and Krishna's response is abhyasena, um, what is the nature of this abhyasa? 
Um, even in chapter 12, when uh, Krishna says it's much harder for those contemplating upon Nirguna Brahman versus Saguna Brahman. So you start with like Mayeva Mana Adatsva. And then if you can't do that, then do Abhyasa. And then if you can't do that, do Sarva Karma Palatyaga. But isn't it also the case that in order to be able to do Sarva Karma Palatyaga, that itself requires abhyasa. Mm. So what is the abhyasa that one needs to go about? Also in response to Arjuna in chapter 6, Krishna, after abhyasena, he also says uh, vairagyena. Mm. And I'm thinking of the qualities of a student. You have viveka, vairagya, the six categories, and mumukshu. And this this is related to what you were saying about desirelessness, because isn't mumukshu itself a desire for liberation? Okay, there are multiple questions. <laughs> we'll, we'll get, yeah. So Aparajit has some really good questions. Let me start with where she started with art. Are you an artist? Yeah. Okay, what do you do? Paint? I, I dance. You dance? Bharatanatyam. Bharatanatyam, very good. Um, so art. Before we go on, list a word about art. There are two sides to this. One is, from a spiritual perspective, not particularly helpful. Another is, it could be very helpful. So the best kind of art is that which has a link to the transcendent, to the spirit. There is some element that, that comes into this art, whatever it is, dance, painting, uh, writing, where there's... Uh, a glimpse into something beyond, uh, standing on that wall and looking beyond to the other side. And then you bring it back because you can't show them what you saw on the other side. You try to express it through your language, through your dance, through your painting. So that art, that painting, that language, that dance has an element of the transcendent, of the infinite in the world of the finite. So art can do that. And Vivekananda, he told Sister Nivedita, Sister Nivedita writes, that our master told us religion, art and science are three ways in which you can reach the infinite. There are three ways of doing the same thing except that you need um, uh, Advaita to understand this. If it's a dualistic religion, it, will, it can use art to serve its purposes but it will not say that art itself will take you to enlightenment. Advaita can say that art itself will take you to enlightenment. But it must, have, it must be that kind of art with that intention that I am reaching for the infinite. I am trying to express the infinite. I am trying to embody the infinite. Like Schopenhauer said, do your words come from more words or do your words come from silence? The words coming from silence are the real art, which is somewhere there is a touch of the infinite there. So that's the best kind. The other kind is not helpful. What kind? Um, that was the movement in the 20th century. Uh, the death of God, a Nietzschean death of God. Mm -hmm. There is no God, no religion, no spirituality, that's gone. Although I don't think Nietzsche meant it in that crude sense. But anyway, that's how it was taken. Now how do we replace that? Uh, we replace it with art, with society, uh, with mm -hmm. politics, with activism, with, um, uh, you know, there, there was this huge effort in the 20th century to find some replacement for God. Didn't work. The conclusion 100 years later is didn't work. There is nothing that will fill up the God-shaped hole in the human psyche. Except God. The only shape that can fill up that God-shaped hole is the shape of God. <laughs> and I can't resist that joke about the Buddhist 
who um, filled up the God-shaped hole with a hole-shaped God. <laughs> hole, the zero, the empty, the void. <laughs> now, the question was one of two questions. Abhyasa and Vairagya. What is the nature of this Abhyasa? Um, in art and in spirituality, we require the mind and our faculties, our sense organs and all of that. But these are very much part of this world. The mind and all, they, are, they partake of the material world. Whatever partakes of the material world must follow material rules, the rules of this, this universe. So cause and effect. You must generate a powerful enough cause which will give a powerful enough effect. You know, the psychologist um, Haidt, Jonathan Haidt, in that book, Happiness Hypothesis, he says, why is it that uh, all these wonderful ideas about self-help and self-improvement don't really work? You know, Barnes and Noble, you'll find the biggest row of shelves and shelves of books are on self-help. Anything, you know, like if you just see one rack of such books, it's enough to make your life, you become this super person. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. Why not? The reason he says is that, that uh, it's the intellect which consumes these books. It's the heart which feels inspired by these books. Uh, the benefits of getting up early in the morning and doing yoga, the benefits of reading a lot, the benefits of um, you know, being altruistic, benefits of focus, uh, so many things. And the wonderful, you read all that, the great ideas, great, and you feel, oh, I really want to be like that. And this is a great idea, great techniques. What's the problem? The problem is when you have to do it, it's not the intellect which has to do it. When you get up early in the morning and do yoga, it's the body which has to do it. And when you get up in the early in the morning, it's tomorrow in the morning, I'm going to get up and do yoga at 4 a.m. in the morning or 5 a.m. It's cold and you are tired and sleepy and it's time to do yoga. The body says, nope. <laughs> Did you ask me? <laughs> you, you go and do yoga, intellect. <laughs> you can do it in your dreams. I'm sleeping here under the cover. Now, uh, Jonathan Hyde points out that the body and the other elements of our being, like emotions, uh, like uh, uh, you know, the lower mind, uh, they do not respond to ideas. Unfortunately, they don't respond to ideas. Even the mind does not respond to ideas. For example, focus is great, I'm convinced. But the mind is not focused, why not? I'm convinced. The mind which is convinced. No, the intellect is convinced. That's one part of the mind. The other part of the mind is habitual. And that's a great key to how these things work. How does the mind work? How, does the, how do emotions work? How does the body work? They operate on habit. Why do they operate on habit? Habit is inertia. Habit is generated by causes. And it's the effect of several causes in the past. And that's how the universe works. Body, mind are part of the universe. So too is intellect, but intellect is a little sattvic, higher. Um, so how do, we, how do we get the body and the mind and the emotions to cooperate in our big projects? Training. The word for training in Sanskrit is abhyasa. It is, Jonathan Haidt says, 
the mahout and the elephant the mahout knows where to go he's got the gps and the google maps the elephant doesn't know where to go the elephant you have to guide the elephant to that place where you want to go but the elephant is much stronger than the mahout if the elephant doesn't want to go there's nothing that the mahout can do to drag the elephant there then how will the elephant listen to the mahout the elephant responds to training the elephant has been trained the elephant of the body the elephant of our emotions and our lower mind they respond to abhyasa that which is really difficult for us put in the requisite abhyasa it will become really easy for us it's really easy for us to remain cozy in bed and nap early in the morning and i have seen so many monks for whom it's impossible to do that i have seen a monk at the point of death uh, um, in the hospital old swami point of death he sits up in his hospital bed and faces the wall i've seen this literally faces the wall and sits rock steady in meditation for 2 hours and you think we marvel how is that possible the thing is it's abhyasa he cannot not do it he's been doing it for 60 years 70 years that's the power of abhyasa you use this secret that body responds to habit emotions respond to habit the mind responds to habit and train that just takes a lot of meticulous work for and it has to be done systematically the the essence of practice the essence of abhyasa is repetition do it again and again so that the cause becomes strong enough the effect will follow you put a groove replace other grooves with a new groove which you put into the mind then vairagya vairagya is very important because what really ties us to this world advaita vedanta will say ignorance you do not know the you know your real nature as pure consciousness that's what ties you to the world theory theory practically the nasty part of all of this is what ties us to the world is desire what is desire vivekananda says thine only is the hand that holds the rope that drags thee on you are holding on to the world you are holding on to the body you are holding on to this limited uh, existence that's why when we are told about your unlimited awareness either we don't want to listen to it people find it upsetting when we are told the world is an appearance an illusion a dream so many people become upset they don't want it i want to be spiritual but i want this world to be real too they don't want it i can understand why why people in the world might be upset um when you say the world is false it's an appearance and but why would a genuine spiritual seeker be uh, upset good riddance good for <laughs> good news the world is an appearance what's the big deal it's desire i'm holding on so vairagya is dispassion let go let go there is nothing here worth holding on you are hurting yourself you're being dragged along by a phantom a very 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 ancient verse beautiful verse you know what it says it says you are immersed in the ocean of bliss alas you do not see what do you see you see the water of a mirage and chase it chase after it lifetime after lifetime what is this mirage the world samsara it's like the 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 water of immortality you are immersed in it you don't see it 
what do you see you see samsara which is the water of a mirage not there what's a mirage it's not there there's no water there you see water of the mirage and it, i'm trying to quench my thirst and chasing that obviously i'll never get it because it's not there and then what do i do i try and try and try till the body is old and decrepit and it cannot do anything more and it uh, breaks down and it dies i go out into the world into the other worlds with this powerful desire that that hunger and thirst for that mirage water and i embody myself again and again and again this is samsara that's why vairagya is the, is the antidote vivekananda says the color of the monk's robe is the color of freedom let go of the rags of worldliness which you are wearing so this is you don't have to put on this color the thing is color the mind with this color the color of freedom whether externally you become a monk or but internally one must the one who has become a monk must first become internally a monk and all of us who are spiritual seekers must internally become this monk like this is called vairagya let go of small things if you want the infinite you will dwell within it so literally what does it mean to let go do i throw everyone out of the house and toss my furniture and my belongings out onto the curb no everything will remain everything will remain as such but you are no longer looking to it at all for fulfillment you will do your duty where you are you will do your best for everyone around you in your family in your community in your office wherever you are that also becomes a spiritual practice for you you don't look to them or those things or those activities for as the goal of your life that this is going to fulfill me no spiritual realization enlightenment god realization becomes the goal of our lives that's real spirituality what's not real spirituality is using spirituality to enhance our worldliness friends mm-hmm. ancient times religion is of these two kinds and it's good both of them are there in the ancient karmakanda there was uh, the vast ritualistic panoply the, the paraphernalia of the vedic rituals with the ancient vedic hindus used to perform for what not for very noble um, goals let there be adequate rainfall let the crops be bountiful uh, let the children be safe from disease um, let my enemies perish <laughs> <laughs> and after all of this a full wonderful life in this world let me go to heaven and have more of this this was the idea god will help me to in that in those days it was the ritual itself not even appealing to god and then there was the spirituality of the upanishads which we are talking about here advaita vedanta and all based on the upanishads where no 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 i'm not looking to this limited world i'm seeking to transcend it and realize who i am this infinite being and therefore i go beyond all want there are two kinds spirituality for improving my my life in the world and spirituality and my life for attaining spiritual realization the reverse and the same is true now people don't really not many people perform those elaborate vedic rituals they are sort of outmoded but here in the united states especially on the other coast <laughs> we have this entire very popular spirituality and i'll make myself unpopular by saying these things you know, whether it is foretelling the future and uh, you know um, jewels and crystals to set right my karma uh, or uh, knowing the minds of other people or the ability to control the thoughts and attract other people uh, or to win the lottery 
Notice all of those are trying to use otherworldly, so-called otherworldly means to achieve very this-worldly results. These this-worldly results will come anyway, but they are not to our liking, because I haven't done enough good karma to deserve all these things. I want want more, so I want some kind of spiritual ways of attaining something. Let me fix the game the, of karma so that it works in my favor. Now the old Vedic religion rituals, I dare say it had the advantage of actually working. <laughs> to some extent, it, at least to some extent. There's no, ultimately it will, it will disappoint you because it's all limited. Whether this world or the next world, everything comes to an end and leaves you with a bitter taste. And with unhappiness. But the new age spirituality, some of it, I'm not condemning it at all, but some of it, it's just plain hoax. It's just plain hoax. Playing upon the gullible, playing upon the weak, playing upon the suffering, giving them hope, and then making dollars out of it, money out of it. Be strong. You don't need any of it. You are the infinite. Why do you need these little things? Why do you need these little magic tricks? Why do you need these little ghosts and spirits? No. You are their master. They belong to you. And the genuine spirituality is still there, which is my life for spiritual realization. Not those spiritual stuff for improving this particular little life. So always throughout human history, it's been like this. Now why did I say it was good? Well, even if you are going to God for this worldly gain, you at least have a faith in God. That much, that much uh, goodness is there. That those who go to a temple or a church or something and try to um, pray for you know, curing a disease or get winning the lottery or whatever, is uh, they have uh, faith in God. They're helping. They're asking for the help of God. To that extent, it's good, but still, it's worldliness. All right. Thank you. So, vairagya is absolutely necessary. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's take a couple of questions from the internet audience and then we will go back. The gentleman that you wanted to ask a question and the lady here, you wanted to ask her. Don't forget your questions. <laughs> First time. Uh, this question is from uh, Dr. Indraki B. Swamiji, thank you for your insightful and easy to understand sermons. My question is related to your discourse on the Advaita philosophy and Buddhism. If Buddhism believes in reincarnation, then why does it not believe in an Atman? What is it that Buddhism believes is reincarnated if not the Atman? Mm -hmm. It is unlikely that Buddhism believes it is the mind-body that reincarnates. Please explain. Well, the answer is in the question itself, last part. The body doesn't reincarnate, the body dies. Mm -hmm. It goes to pieces, it is burned, cremated, um, buried, whatever you call it. Now, if we as Hindus say it's the Atman which is re reincarnated, the Self, the Buddhist will immediately ask, really? The Self is changeless? You yourself say to the Hindus. How can a changeful, changeless Self be incarnated and reincarnated? It's a kind of change, right? The Atman must be steady, beyond any change, beyond any coming and going. How can it be reincarnated? Rather, 
what the Buddhist proposes is, so Buddhist will first, the strategy is, and this, I'm quoting ancient debates, the strategy is first to attack the opponent's position. You are saying without a permanent self, you cannot explain reincarnation. Oh Buddhist, you believe in reincarnation. Then how can you reject the idea of a permanent self? So the Buddhist first says, can the idea of a permanent self support reincarnation? And then he will show very, in very logical steps, it can't. The idea of a permanent self and the right idea of being born and living and dying and being born again, again, they are not compatible. They don't go together. Physical body is dead. Then what is going from body to body, lifetime to lifetime? It cannot be a permanent self. Permanent self cannot change. Reincarnation is change. Then the Hindu will say, Okay, wise guy, tell me what's your solution? And the Buddhist will say, Actually, our solution is logical. What it is like is, Not that some particular entity is being reincarnated. It's more like a process. Moment to moment, the, the subtle body, the sukshma sharira, the sentient being, is perishing and another exact copy is being created. That exists for a moment and it perishes and another exact copy is being created. And those copies have retained the impression of the past copies. So they all feel, they are very similar. So this, you give an illusion of continuity. It's like a good example is when you shake a rope, you see a wave going like this through the rope. It's not that the rope here is now going there. At every point the rope comes up and down. It's a wave being propagated. Similarly, um, the Buddhist says, it's like a wave being propagated. A set of impressions, a set of characteristics. It goes forward once a physical body falls apart. That subtle body also is moment to moment arising and disappearing. And it brings with itself... You'll say, no, no, consciousness is in the background. No, every moment it comes up with its own consciousness. Flashes of consciousness. In fact, the, the phrase stream of consciousness is very, it applies very well to the Buddhist idea. There's actually a Sanskrit word for ancient Sanskrit term for that. Shanika Vigyanadhara. The momentary stream of momentary consciousness. Flashes of consciousness. And that takes up with, with um, memories, thoughts. How are those memories and thoughts encoded? With um, matter, with a subtle matter which is being uh, appropriated moment to moment. None of it is permanent. It's just an impulse which is transmitted. And that takes up a new body which will live for a while, again disappear, die. It's like the waves in the ocean. So, um, that's the answer from the Buddhist side. So there's no real solution from the Hindu dualist side. It's only the Advaitic uh, answer which which uh, gives um, the right answer. The the Vedantic Advaitic Brahman existence consciousness place. You are right. It says to the Buddhist that's not incarnated. That neither is born nor does it die. And you are right. What is incarnated is continuously changing. It's that appearance of mind body. The body dies moment. To, I mean lifetime to lifetime to lifetime, and the mind is continuously changing. Mind is a stream of subtle matter thoughts. The body is a stream of physical matter that falls apart after some time. The subtle matter goes on. So it's the, as the Buddhist said, there is this mind which goes from, um, from lifetime to lifetime. In Sanskrit it's called sukshma sharira, subtle body. And that's always changing. 
that's that's a complex entity capable of change and it survives physical death of the body and it goes on from lifetime to lifetime that that embodies the jiva the sentient being now the danger so the buddhist position the advaitic position is same no then the buddhist you see the, what's the danger of making concessions to clever people <laughs> you've made a concession that yes you're right then the buddhist will say aha so if it is the subtle body which only goes from lifetime to lifetime to lifetime that explains everything why do we need your atman brahman consciousness get rid of it come to our camp welcome to the buddhist camp you uh, hindus have become buddhist and then there is the reply from the advaitic side if it is a series of there are many arguments but if it's a series of flashes of consciousness what's a flash it is a beginning and an end right momentary then another one it's discrete series 1 2 3 4 not continuous there's a whole argument between continuous consciousness and discrete consciousness flashes of consciousness and continuous consciousness if you argue in that way the buddhist would say yes what's the problem in flashes of consciousness the problem is if it's a flash and the next flash there's a gap between the two yeah. how would you know there's a gap if you don't know there is a gap then then say it's continuous why would speak about a gap if you know there is a gap to know there must be consciousness and that consciousness must be there in the gap <laughs> there's no really no other way around this argument and there are other arguments also how about recognition if every flash is discrete and separate in that case there is no continuity who is in bondage and who attains nirvana Uh, who is the one who suffered who had the past karma and why should i suffer the results of this um, past karma because i am not literally the one who did that karma it sounds very weird so it falls apart if you push it little further there must be a unifying background yeah uh next one uh there are three questions on consciousness and it's just, just go through all, all very good dr daniel d asks or says i am a devoted follower of your talks on youtube but when you say all is an appearance in consciousness what do you mean so james jeans the late physicist said that we are an idea in the mind of god might this be something like what you mean by an appearance in consciousness also is it permitted to think about characteristics of awareness/pure consciousness For example, I think of pure consciousness as loving. Is pure consciousness active and thinks and therefore creates all that is? And then Mangesh asks, how right, let's just take that one first. Okay. There's a lot there. <laughs> um so um what do you mean that pure con- things appear in pure consciousness? I mean just that. Look at your experience right now. One way of understanding our experience right now are things appearing in consciousness. Here I have people, colors, and shapes, space and depth appearing in consciousness. In I have sound appearing in consciousness. Appearing means being experienced. That's all. I have the sense of a body and warmth and all appearing in consciousness. Uh, is it warm? You can put on the fan. It's right behind you. You want to put on the fan? Yeah. Right. Isn't that how we experience life? As experiences and what is an experience things appear in consciousness that's what consciousness is you know things appear in consciousness things disappear in consciousness presence and absence of objects of experience that's what life is all right 
Now, um, we are an idea in the mind of God. James Jean said that. Is it something like that? No, no, not quite. Because the mind, I'm not saying that it's like thinking. I'm just uh, Things appear in consciousness is not a fancy way of thinking that we think of things. No. The mind appears in consciousness. And literally, this is what I mean. In deep sleep, for example, the mind does not appear. It goes to sleep. The external world does not appear. Only you exist, but there's nothing to experience. There's just the absence. You can say in one, and sometimes Advaitins say that the absence is experienced in deep sleep. It's not an experience of absence. It's not an absence of experience. Rather, deep sleep is an experience of absence. If there is experience, there must be consciousness. There's no possibility of any experience without consciousness. So things appear in consciousness, the mind also appears in consciousness. Can we say consciousness is loving only in a rather peculiar sense? To be loving you must be a person with a mind and a heart and emotion. But the impersonal consciousness is loving in only in this sense, like the sky is loving for example. The vast blue sky, it is spacious and inclusive of anything and everything. To exist physically you must be in space. So space in that sense is all-inclusive. In that sense, pure consciousness is, is loving because it is vast and spacious and luminous and therefore it enables all things to exist and reveals all things in that sense. But it's a very philosophical way of saying loving. Uh, what was the last part? Also, is it permitted to think about characteristics of awareness slash pure No, it's no. not permitted. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? Why not? Characteristics are in Nyaya language, they are qualities, guna, qualities. Qualities belong to substances. So the table is brown, this one is brown. Brown is the characteristic. But where does the brown exist? Not in this, it's not floating in the sky. It exists in this table, in the altar. This flower is um, pink, white and pink. Where do the white and the pink exist? In the flower, they are not floating in the sky. Characteristics exist in substances. This is sort of basic philosophy. Now if you say there are characteristics in consciousness, they must be existing in some substance. We'll say, yeah, I told you, they exist in consciousness. But if the characteristics are objective, because you're speaking about it, the substance also must be objective. Then it cannot be consciousness. It's an object to consciousness. Characteristics will be always be existing in objects. Objects have characteristics, characteristics exist in objects and they are revealed to consciousness. Consciousness itself is not an object and therefore does not have characteristics. Next question. Um, and Mangesh asks, how can we be sure that this waking world appears in consciousness and not in the mind like our dreams? Because the mind also appears in consciousness. Um, notice, notice, the dreams also appear in consciousness. Nothing really can appear in a mind without consciousness. I mean, what's a mind? Just the crudest example. You just think right now ABCD. I just thought ABCD. ABCD is just like mental talk. To experience it, it must be illumined by consciousness. You experience the mind saying ABCD. Like, you know, ABCD. If the mind, if things are appearing in the mind, to experience them, there must be consciousness. So ultimately, dreams are also illumined by consciousness. Without consciousness, no dream can be experienced. 
See, I want, don't want to get into it. Just look at the difference between what has been achieved. This is we are living in the age of chat GPT. <laughs> I was playing around with it yesterday. <laughs> it's an amazing thing. And one um, um, gentleman asked me, so what do you think? This chat GPT is intelligence. Like it's, it's, well, behavior is so intelligent. Uh, far, far more than your Google. You, know? you can ask it to do things and it does it for you. Students are delighted. All their assignments, it can be done. And, and I have heard, I've got reports that there are academic meetings taking place in academic departments across the world. Right now, emergency meetings. How do you deal with students turning in beautiful assignments all written by AI, not by them? So they are banning it now. It won't work. Banning it won't work. Only temporarily. Um, how do you distinguish it from consciousness? Notice, this is, I said this is a powerful argument for Vedanta. Why just Vedanta? For Sankhya, for Advaita, for Sankhya, for Buddhism. For the unique nature of consciousness. Why? Now you have these powerful AI, artificial intelligence, which can replicate every function which we thought was peculiar to the human mind. Creativity. They're writing beautiful stories now. Very soon they'll win, win awards. They, somebody, a computer-generated art won an award. And there was a huge outcry. And I saw an article, The Prejudice Against Computer-Generated Art. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, creativity, intelligence. It's writing, it's responding to you and you can carry on an intelligent conversation with ChatGPT. So, what's the difference? The difference is there, only in one thing, which is consciousness. Notice, the one thing that all of these AIs, the tremendous amount of development in computer science, the one thing it cannot replicate is consciousness. Chat GPT has no inner consciousness, no experience of being an artificial intelligence chatbot. How do I know that? I asked it. And <laughs> Are you having internal experiences? I didn't ask it, a student asked and they, uh, sent me the results. Are you having uh, internal experiences? Then uh, it said, no, I am uh, 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 like, I'm a programmed, like natural language processing uh, thing and I have no consciousness. <laughs> so this devotee uh, sent me the the answer from ChatGPT has no consciousness. Anyway, we knew that. Uh, because if you ask those who programmed it, have you programmed it for intelligence? Yes. Have you programmed it for speech recognition? Yes. Have you programmed it for uh, editing text and generating new text? Yes. For creativity? Yes. Have you programmed it for consciousness? Wait, wait, wait. No. <laughs> Why not? We don't know how. It's not only that they are not conscious, the interesting thing is across the world, Computer science experts, um, the programmers, uh, artificial intelligence experts, neuroscientists, they will all tell you we have no idea at all. We have no idea where to begin to program something for consciousness. Nobody has any idea. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. How strange. My question was, intelligence, creativity, memory, these are all amazing things. And you now you can replicate them, them through um, computers. Uh, powerful computers can all 
somebody said look they are not doing exactly what we are doing when we think we imagine right but they are doing a really good job of imitating and giving the products like the outward behavior is very similar but yeah. these are all amazing things creativity is amazing intelligence is amazing memory is amazing um, all of these are amazing things consciousness is a very simple thing what does consciousness do actually practically only one thing it gives you first person experience an inner feeling of color and sound and pressure and light and uh, um, desire and thought and emotion and identity just feeling that's all just the feeling the experience of life itself that's what it gives you only one thing it does first person experience it should be pretty simple to program it but no there's no <laughs> and there is enough data because we are all conscious except the few zombies who might be here we are all conscious how extraordinary these advances i'm telling you they are a powerful validation of this ancient insight that consciousness is unique and it is the core of our existence of what we are all right the next one uh, the the pratibha manch study group has mm -hmm. questions on moksha yeah we'll take those and then we'll take a couple of questions from yeah these two the lady here and the gentleman there yeah the moksha questions yes, yes. is yeah. moksha a state of being one with the divine or is it a process of becoming instead is it a slow transformation that occurs with each right choice that one makes or is it something that happens at the end of life all right just let me take that much and we'll go ahead is moksha freedom some of you are already fidgety thinking when will we we get moksha <laughs> you'll get moksha very soon uh, in 10 minutes or so uh, i mean moksha from the session will uh, wrap up uh, so um does it happen at once answer is yes and or over time the answer is yes but in different aspects at once i was reading vivekananda in inspired talks at least twice thrice he uses a word flash and it is done before that you keep trying you keep seeking you keep practicing that takes a lot of time but the actual process of enlightenment and freedom is a flash it's done a breakthrough then what takes time what takes time is the initial seeking and that can take years lifetimes or some for some people a short time like ramana maharshi he tried once or twice and he was uh, he he made the breakthrough but we will as vedanta we will say that you know he has been trying for um, past you know many many years in the past lives uh, so this past life thing is very good for bookkeeping you can make all the accounts match <laughs> i can put it back to the past life so it um, so one way it takes a lot of time it's a slow process is building up to that breakthrough another the moksha itself you know, the question might be that no no i didn't ask about getting to moksha but the moksha itself is it a slow process or does it happen immediately well it happens immediately but afterwards there is a slow process what is the slow process it is the manifesting of the moksha in your life what is called jivan mukti those who are already highly advanced have done a lot of meditation or have a very pure mind they will manifest that enlightenment very easily you we call them saints they're very saintly people they become spontaneously they are holy people because they are already ready 
and so they manifest that divinity easily in their lives for the rest there is a struggle again afterwards struggle means it's a different kind of struggle before that the spiritual struggle is seeking i'm seeking god i'm trying to get uh, uh, you know self realization enlightenment who am i then you find you have found it this person is no longer seeking this person has realized that i am brahman or this person if you are a dualist you have found god you feel the presence of god it's no longer seeking it's more like staying and living it that staying and living it takes time because um, uh, it you are again fighting against the elephant the creature of habits if the habits have been sufficiently purified by past spiritual practices the manifestation is fast what you realize you live it that's what plato meant to know the good is to be good we immediately rebel no 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 we know what is good but we can't be good plato would say weep that you say, say that because you are really messed up <laughs> the pipes are clogged at one level is the intellect which knows the good at the other level is the rest of our being which doesn't follow the intellect then that means we are messed up i know what's good i can't do it why not because that's our human condition but plato says something which is which seems uh, uh, which seems alarming uh, that he says to know the good is to be good well vedanta would also agree for a person who is sufficiently purified to know the good is to be good to know the reality is to live the reality so in that sense next why do eminent acharyas interpreting the same vedas come to such different conclusions on what moksha is do we need a guru for moksha all right let's just why are there so many views of moksha actually i gave a talk to this group that subject was moksha and the six systems of indian philosophy so the multiple views of liberation all the religions of the world the theologies of the world they have they express it in different ways here sri ramakrishna is very useful here because he, uh, his view is that all of these were enlightened people in contrast to the earlier efforts of trying to establish my school versus other schools or my religion versus other religions one approach was mine alone i clearly have the truth because i am enlightened i see the truth you guys are saying something different so you can't be enlightened you are false this was the approach and then led to fla- uh, fights and clash um uh, or uh, it led to kind of superiority that you have got a little bit of the truth i admit it but i've got the whole truth whereas the core idea of the vedas you know it's right there truth is one the sages call it variously that's the answer to the question sri ramakrishna also says that they are all enlightened but they saw it differently as the you know that aspect of the infinite which they realized that part of the elephant which they touched the story of the five blind men and the elephant they all touched the elephant some said the elephant is a pillar they touched the leg some said the elephant is like a long pipe that touched the trunk this elephant is a rope that touched the tail elephant is a big fan that touched the ear that was one irritated elephant i can tell you <laughs> <laughs> so that's by the different philosophies have conceived of moksha in different ways but there are some commonalities they are all beyond suffering for example it works yeah do we need a guru highly recommended uh, can there be self activated enlightenment without extreme practices of yoga and meditation spontaneous enlightenment without extreme practices of yoga and uh, 
like meditation yoga spiritual practices generally not but i can't rule it out because different spiritual traditions in india especially they testify to the fact that it could be possible spontaneous awakening uh, we will immediately say past lives you've done a lot of practice in past lives a lot of seeking and it germinates in this life but then you just make someone will say you're just making it up swami <laughs> the fact is that some people tend very very few people tend to awaken spontaneously ramana maharshi was a classic example of almost spontaneous awakening even in this day and age i will not take the name there's some people who are genuine teachers and they seem to have awakened spontaneously very popular teachers whose teaching is very advaitic whether they acknowledge it or not it's non dualistic advaitic there is a tradition for example kashmiri shaivism it says there are four ways of attaining enlightenment one way is the no way way it's not that there's no way of attaining enlightenment it's just that you attain enlightenment there's no path to it you just it happens it's called anupaya no upaya means method no method method what do i do ah huh? wrong question <laughs> <laughs> so how does it work it happens uh, you can just say it happens through grace they call it shakti path or the extreme transference of grace from the guru or from shiva they call god shiva but that doesn't sound hopeful when will it happen no idea <laughs> so you cannot hang around waiting for that to happen second is um shambhava upaya shambhava upaya means the way of shambhu or shiva which is very similar to advaita vedanta a pointing out is given talks about your real nature you are inquired into it stay with it you will realize and like vivekananda says flash mm. shambhava upaya didn't work i've been coming to your classes for so many years <laughs> <laughs> then there is shakta upaya the way of shakti the way of the divine mother which includes along with those pointing out instructions it includes mantra and meditation much more complex see each level as we go further down it becomes more complex more intricate and more intense practices so there is long hours of mantra chanting there is long hours of trying to focus in meditation the third one the first one the second one the shambhava upaya way of shiva does not have does not depend on meditation it depends upon inquiry and direct realization of who, who am i third level the shakti level depends upon shakto upaya the way of shakti depends on mantra practice and meditation practice is rigorous practice not working i try to repeat the mantra it's mechanical try to meditate fall asleep then there is the fourth level called anuva upaya in their scheme anu means atom atom means us <laughs> shiva is the vast infinite and we are the we are tiny but we are actually shiva so their ritual devotion um, extraordinary complexity of methodology is given many many practices to do lot of intensive practice which you see in chanting in rituals in devotional practices in temples and so on and so forth much more complex so there's all these four levels can it happen spontaneously yes can it happen in a short direct way if you're lucky yes give it a try give it a spin <laughs> <laughs> but always be ready to work for it and we are working on our way towards it is that uh, well there are a couple more or we will we'll, uh, hold off on that right let's quickly take the questions from this lady that you come uh, the gentleman there please come and ask the question and the lady here and we'll wrap it up because moksha <laughs> um 
Namaste, Swamiji. Uh, my name is uh, my name is Thomas, and I am confused about the nature of how can the world, how can the reality be truly one? Because in uh, I'm glad you mentioned Plato before, because I I I read Plato in college, but in his Sophist, he mentions that there cannot truly be a one because if you say the one is, you're describing uh, the action of existence or, or the action of a verb indicates a subject and an object. And in many of the scriptures, in the Puranas and in the Vedas, there are various gods, spirits, people mentioned, and how is it that we truly quote, exist if we do have consciousness because we, because we have a, a sense of being. And is it that Brahman or the one, as Plato describes it, uh, uh, tohen in, uh, in ancient Greek, uh, is it just that it is interacting with itself? But if it is interacting with itself, it's interacting and that's an action again that uh, that mm. indicates a uh, subject and an object. So I'm just wondering, yeah. how can there truly be one? Truly be one. First of all, we have to give Plato his due. They can't be. <laughs> they can't be. It's like, but what Plato is saying is that there's this world of existent things. I'm using language which Heidegger used a long time later. So this is one philosopher in Western tradition who said that the the most important philosophical issue has been forgotten since the time of Plato. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to re revive it, Heidegger. But he got mixed up with the Nazis, so he's... <laughs> um, he was a particular favorite of Hitler, actually, in, 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 in Germany. Which goes to show you can be very brilliant without being a particularly good person. You can be brilliant, you can have wonderful insights and still be a very weak person. Um, all right. What really exists in our world? Common sense, before, before being philosophical. Existing thing, people exist. Yeah. And it's not one people, it's people, so many. Chairs exist, the space exists. Perhaps concepts exist. In some sense, fictional world, Harry Potter exists. So, yeah, I mean, there are various kinds of things which we, we might say exist. But notice, they are all many. And they are all defined. One thing is not the other. So there are distinctions, and there are separation, and there are multiplicities. That's how we experience existence. But all of this is existing things that existence, not existence. So first of all, Plato is right. That one which you are talking about, it cannot be one among many. If you make a catalog of all the real things in this universe, you will never, in that catalog, you'll never find the one. You'll never find Brahman, um, the thing in itself, uh, being itself. It'll not be part of the list. And the 75th thing is Brahman in the catalog. No, you'll never find that. You, you can't do an audit. You can't do an in inventory of things in the universe and come across Brahman. Are we missing Brahman or is, you'll always miss Brahman. Now, does that mean Brahman doesn't exist? Well, it, you're right, it doesn't really, you must be very clear about this. 
Uh, it doesn't exist in the thing in the sense we think the things in the world exist. People are looking worried already. <laughs> no, it doesn't exist in that sense. That's why something like the emptiness concept of Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, um, is very useful in clarifying Advaita Vedanta. Look for your real nature as pure consciousness. You will never ever find it. If you find it, dismiss it immediately because it's not the reality. It is nothing that you can see or hear or smell or taste or touch. It's nothing that we can conceive of in mind or speak about in language. It's nothing that can be captured in mathematical equations. It's empty. A vast emptiness, a vast nothingness and yet somehow permeated by a luminosity. This empty luminosity, the Buddhists say it's like the vast blue sky. It's completely empty, yet it's shining. This emptiness is what Advaita Vedanta calls Purnam, the fullness. We call it infinite being, not infinite existence, not existence. It exists only in the sense, now you said language, you say it exists. Isn't it? Aren't you using a verb? It is an action. True. Again true. Yeah. This is what Wittgenstein pointed out. The limits of the world are the limits of language. Whatever you can express in language must be part of the world. Yeah. I was reading this author, Ellenberg. He imagines a very beautiful point in that book. It's called The Time of the Magicians or something. He talks about Heidegger, Wittgenstein, Walter Benjamin. Um, so he says, imagine these two young men, this is pre-Second World War, walking down in the Bavarian forest where Heidegger was working. He says, Heidegger and Wittgenstein, they're walking back. And Heidegger has, has, a, has an intuition. He calls it isness. Yeah. He says, it is haunting me, this new idea. And then he says, he says, Heidegger says to Wittgenstein, in that imagined con conversation, never happened. He says, isn't existence magical? How it appears? In that dialogue, he says, look, in German it's there. He says, look, here, a tree, a shrub, a rock, there, 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 existence, existence, existence. And Wittgenstein replies to him by saying, again, imagine con a conversation, replies to him by saying, yes, but you can't say it. You can't say it. If you say it, you're using language. And you're already making a mistake. You're making that into an existing thing. It's not an existing thing. Um, what, then what do you do with it? Wittgenstein says in the Tractatus, he says, it is the mystical. What, whereof we cannot speak, we must remain silent. It's the realm of the mystical. He doesn't deny that there is, again, wrong language. There is such a thing. It's completely wrong language. Advaita Gaurapada would say, Hush! There is only that. <laughs> a good example is the ornament and gold example. If we are introduced with a beautiful display of Tiffany's jewelry, and then somebody introduces us to the fact that there is this reality, beautiful, amazing, most important thing called gold. And I'm excited about it. I asked the shopkeeper, the, show me your catalogue of all the jewels. I want to, where's the gold? Nowhere. 
and yet everywhere and if Heidegger comes and says gold I'll show you gold there there and if I don't know what gold is I'll say oh you mean the necklace that there you mean the bracelet it's not the necklace or the bracelet per se but other than it there is no necklace and bracelet it's everywhere but it's it's in everything but it is no thing it's in every ornament but it's not an ornament if all we know are ornaments existing things we'll think it's non-existent but is it non-existent it sounds very theoretical Swami pure being pure existence sounds people and objects these are real and this your pure existence is very like a phantom philosophical phantom no it's like saying going to the jewelry shop and saying your idea of gold seems to be a phantom a fiction it's the ornaments which are real not really it's the gold which is real your ornaments are theoretical what's an ornament a name a form a use in that sense but you're right language cannot express it every time you express it it's wrong that was the deep insight of Nagarjuna, Chandrakirti, all the great Tibet and the, uh, the uh, philosophers of the void, the emptiness philosophers. And uh, the entire Tibetan tradition. There's a school of Tibetan Buddhism which is the final development of Tibetan Buddhism which is called Prasangika Madhyamaka. That's the, the school that is um, the fundamental school of the Dalai Lama, the Gelugpa monks. They have developed it for the last seven, eight hundred years based on the work of Chandrakirti and Nagarjuna. And their basic thesis is the moment you say it, it's wrong. All, it says, Shunyata Sarva Drishtinam, the emptiness of all philosophies. Then somebody attacks them. Somebody attacks them saying that, well, then your philosophy also is empty. Your philosophy, emptiness is empty. First of all, they say, yes, they have a whole section called emptiness of emptiness. <laughs> then your own philosophy is wrong then. Uh, you, say, you say anything then it's uh, it's false it's empty and then Nagarjuna replies yes it would be if I said something but I don't say anything <laughs> whatever you say I'll point it out that it's wrong I'll show you how it's wrong if I did say something if I had a proposition to make you could cut it down but I have no proposition to make because that's the truth yeah, I could go on it's my favorite subject thank you for that <laughs> the last question here please come Tell us your name and ask the question. Pranam Swamiji. Uh, thank you for all your teachings. Uh, thank you for your presence in New York. Uh, actually, you kind of touch on my question. Tell us your name. Oh, Adriana. Um, you kind of touch on my question on previous answer to the question from the viewers. For a spiritual seeker, once that person reaches, reaches a certain stage where it feels stuck, not moving forward, but rather uh, regressing. Um, is a guru necessary? Thank you. Right. Um, yes, a guru is necessary. Is always very good. A guru is a person you can refer to, you can ask questions, who will help you. Somebody who has walked ahead on the path before you. Also somebody who is plugged into a tradition and is the, uh, is the holder of a lot of spiritual wisdom which has come down in that tradition and in our spiritual path we can benefit from this accumulated mass of spiritual wisdom so Guru is very helpful in our tradition what we do is there are some Swamis who are empowered to initiate give mantra diksha so they are the Gurus 
So we typically go to the Swami and ask, pray for initiation. They give us the mantra diksha. That's the guru. And of course, we learn from everybody. We continue to learn from everybody. But it's not, we're not limited to one person. But that one person is now the guru, the spiritual guru. You may not ever go back to the guru again and ask anything. But you have a guru, a lineage, a practice of your own. That's very helpful. And if you have specific questions, again, that lineage and accumulated spiritual wisdom helps you. It's a very good question. I'll just add, thank you. I'll add one thing to what uh, you asked and end there. The way I left it off, the gold in all the ornaments, the one inexpressible, the emptiness, the luminous emptiness and all that, that might sound very good, but what do I do with it? Is it at all realizable? Is it at all uh, experienceable? I didn't complete it. The beauty of Advaita Vedanta is, it stresses that empty luminosity is you. That limitless existence which appears as all existent things is you. Tattvamasi, you are that. Definitely, I mean, experienceable, again language fails here, experienceable, realizable. Why not? Because you know it already as I, me, myself. It's just the uh, misidentification with body and mind which veils my reality from itself. It is, it's not knowable, it's perfectly realizable. It's more than knowable in Vivekananda's words. That's a good way of ending it. It's far more than knowable. And that knowledge, realization, it solves all our problems. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupanamastu